to Lended Lopate at Large. I'm Lended Lopate. If you feel a bit overwhelmed at times by all of the things that are going on in the news these days, you're not alone. To help us sort out some of them, we have been inviting one of our show's favorite guests, Robert Henley, an award-winning print and broadcast journalist who specializes on the economy and politics, to our show. And you can hear his WBAI show most Monday mornings. He reports regularly for Salon and a number of, uh, of prominent news organizations. His book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People?, is published by Democracy at Work, and I'm very pleased to welcome Bob Henley back to our show now. Hi, Bob. It's another month already. <laughs> another month and all sorts of weird things going on. Um, I'm going to refer to a couple of articles you've written recently. Uh, in one, you noted that in an address to the AFL-CIO in 1961, Dr. Martin Luther King said that the labor movement did not diminish the strength of the nation, but enlarged it. And by raising the living standards of millions, labor miraculously created a market for industry and lifted the whole nation to undreamed of levels of production. But in, in the decades since, the percentage of Americans in labor unions has declined substantially, while wealth concentration has accelerated dramatically and the racial wealth gap has grown wider and wider. Are we... Moving backwards? Uh, we are moving backwards, but I, I think that labor laying down and um, asking permission, making concessions, giving givebacks, that's over. As we speak, we have uh, thousands of Rutgers workers on strike, faculty, healthcare workers, associated professionals for the first time in the 260 a year history of that institution across the nation. Uh, workers are striking as I haven't in in decades. We see a 57% increase in the applications, at least in the first half of 22, uh, to uh, have a union in your workplace. Uh, there's a very strange disconnect. You do have the National Professional Democrats um, that support President Biden uh, who make a living out of being Democrats, right? They want things to moderate. They would like the progressive wing of the Democratic Party to sit down and just, you know, uh, be um, moderate. But what's happening is there's a militancy that's happening that the professional Democrats in the Beltway are out of touch with. That's why you see the images that we've seen in Nashville where the uh, Republicans attempted to oust and did um, the the two uh, state senators mm -hmm. uh that um, African-Americans had spoke on behalf of the crowds that had come uh, there to speak on behalf of the, the protesters. So you see mass protests in the streets like we haven't seen in a while. I mean, you saw uh, overnight uh, State Representative Justin Jones and Justin Pearson become household names. Uh, the world is moving, and I have to say, in the right direction. Is that, you think, partly because uh, things have eased up? Uh, as uh, uh, since the pandemic uh, re has now reached how many years? Three years? I, I would say that it's a, a consequence of an anthropological shift in the way people regard work and in the social contract that's governed that relationship. I think a mass death event that we hadn't seen uh, on the scale of what we just saw um, is something that has people thinking differently about labor and the basic existential question of what is life for? And so because capitalism in this late stage predator stage uh, really pushed the equation and still is, uh, what we saw is that uh, our scarcity model of for-profit healthcare uh, really was the thing that to a large degree uh, may have helped actually to drive up the American death count, it's instructive to look at the data. 4% of the world's population, the United States is, and 12% of the COVID uh, uh, death rate. And I dare say, if you put the cost of our healthcare system on top of all this, you see a rankly corrupt, hmm. insidious system that can't even do infection control. I mean, one of the things that some of the groups that have been most successful have been the nurses, uh, who were prophetic in the way they pointed out how the government's response, which the federal government is gets weak need whenever you talk about having a 9-11 commission to look at their performance, they they turn to jello. 
Uh, one of the things that nurses pointed out early on was that the scarcity of not having sufficient masks, uh, the scarcity of staff in hospitals was going to make it hard to control infections. And as a consequence, the hospitals like Elmhurst and so many hospitals became a vector for the disease, driving up the body count. It's no accident that if you take the after excess mortality numbers and superimpose it as Reverend Barber's and an economist Jeffrey Sachs has, and look at where the heat was, the places that pay, paid the highest price in terms of death and disease were the poorest places, which, by the way, is where most of the essential workforce lives. Well, don't, so that's going to be a problem. Don't multi-billion dollar corporations like Amazon and Starbucks violate federal labor laws to defeat union organizing? Uh, yeah, and as a matter of fact, that's kind of been, uh, I have to say, one of the things that's come out of, because elections do matter, is that the National Labor Relations Board is standing up on behalf of unions in a way that they haven't. Historically, we had the likes of um, Anton Scalia's son, who is a management side uh, labor uh, uh, attorney running the Department of Labor. Uh, we do see a change of tone there uh, so that at least uh, the Amazons and the Starbucks get the equivalent of, tra of a traffic ticket for uh, violating uh, labor rights. But I would say that we need to borrow a page from the French in terms of our militancy. And uh, violating labor law should be a criminal matter. There would be nothing to get the attention of the CEOs in the C-suite than if it wasn't just a matter of throwing lawyers at it and a civil fine, but they could actually risk going to jail. Didn't Mayor Eric Adams sign an agreement with Aetna Insurance that pushed New York City's quarter million retired civil servants into a profit-driven driven Medicare Advantage health care plan? What reason did he give? So uh, this has been something that's been brewing for a long time. So in order to, uh, luckily, uh, your audience has a long attention span, so we can at least go back to those Halcyon Bloomberg days. You remember Uncle Scarcity, who had... Uh, you know, billions for uh, luxury high rises and not so much for working people. Well, Mr. Bloomberg was very skilled. He didn't like unions. He didn't like the civil service. And so he planted a little IEDs, little fiscal IEDs, very shrewd. And so in the form of not renewing contracts for many years, that's right, no contracts at all. When you do that, you begin to unwind the way the city of New York works. Imagine if you didn't change your oil for a while. Eventually, the car gives up. So that's what happened. So we starved the unions, and he didn't provide any raises, didn't give any contracts. Then Mayor de Blasio comes in. To his credit, in the first 18 months, he's got to resolve over 100 contracts. He drains down uh, the health fund in order to satisfy uh, contracts to catch up. But because they don't want to tax the rich, they don't want to collect the stock transfer tax, they don't have enough energy to get themselves over the hump. And so now the uh, mayor uh, de Blasio and following with Mayor Adams, they look at the idea like, oh, look at this Medicare Advantage. We can get it for profit company and the federal government will give us $600 million for turning over our retirees to a for-profit Medicare Advantage kind of model. Now, that may seem fine. And they've said that, you know, we've had the unions and this is what's created the problem. It's divided the MLC. You have the UFT for it. You have District Council 37. You have the Teamsters 237 lining up for it. But several unions oppose it. And basically, the problem here is that the business model of Medicare Advantage, even if they've made this new improved model, the bottom line is, and it doesn't do it for charity. They have prior authorizations and they turn your Medicare hmm. into Candyland, where you have to get a prior authorization to be able to get it. And then they upcode you. This is the fun part. This is why they're under investigation by the Department of Justice. They tell the government you're sicker than you are, so they get a higher reimbursal rate, and then you deny you access to your specialist. Sounds like a business model. Getting back to Michael Bloomberg, isn't he paying for some of those TV ads that we've been seeing in support of Governor Hochul's budget plans? There are a lot of uh, ads about the, her plans, budget, both pro and con, running on TV these days. Oh. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about this is that what is just amazing to me, and this is, um, you know, we try to keep remind people of past injuries, especially ones that aren't resolved. Now, one of the the greatest macro um, uh, economic crimes against the state of New York is this thing that happened in the beginning of the century before World War One. A Republican governor faced with a five million dollar deficit. Oh, for those days back, and he came up with the stock. Stock transfer tax, a simple nickel per hundred dollars. And for every hundred dollars of transaction, get kicked in a nickel to keep the Excelsior state running. It was a fair deal. Wall Street. Prospered. And he was a Republican. He was a Repu- Then in the 1980s, the Democrats, you know, th- let's face it, both parties have been about building wealth. That's what they're about. I'm very sorry about that. Democrats may be a little nicer. They give you a choice where you can get an abortion if you want. But overall, their main mission is to build the pyramid. So in the 1980s, the Democrats decided to refund the nickel back to Wall Street because they were afraid they'd leave. They were afraid that we'd lose the edge of competition to London. And we've been refunding it ever since. And as my colleague and friend James Henry, the economist and and lawyer, points out, some $138 billion we've given back to Wall Street in the last 10 years. Now, with all this debate in Albany, notice that how much both parties will avoid ever just collecting that tax and stopping refunding it. They will do anything. They will tax payrolls. They will make sure that everybody is betting on everything and make the ability to gamble on everything, including when your grandma's going to die online. They'll do anything and everything but collect that lousy nickel. Are liberal Democrats uh, viewing Governor Hochul as a little too middle of the road these days? Well, this is the bright group. And, you know, I, I, it's difficult. You know, these people for a while have been doing this for a few decades. The professional politicians, they have said, America, you've got to modulate to the middle. And that's how they lost the House. And so we had Sean Patrick Maloney attack at the end towards that he was going to be kind of like a neocon on crime. And so they they try to uh, they're afraid of being too woke and they run away from the part of the party that has energy, which is the populist economic message. And so that's what they they believe that they have to come up like, look at my Governor Murphy, Governor Murphy from New Jersey, goes on television and says that he is a proud, cold blooded capitalist. Really? Is that is that what you want to lead with? So that's kind of where they are. They they think that they're part of this prosperity group that Biden has been pushing in. And that's why the Democrats have really, um, you know, they they held on to the Senate, but they have been making it seem the fact they lost out. It wasn't by as much as they expected as a victory. The reality is they're not speaking to the core constituency where they do. They win. Uh, you, you saw in uh, Michigan, you saw in Pennsylvania where they are speaking to the issues, working class issues, they succeed. Uh, we still have a $7.25 federal minimum wage since 2009. That's your Democratic Party going to get along. We had the earned income tax credit, which we just uh, gave a boost, reduced uh, childhood poverty by 40% and snatched it back. So that's how it's been going. And so uh, where they, as I say, where they keep their commitment, where they put working people's issues at the top, they win. When they don't do that, they lose. Robert Henley is our guest today on New York and Company. I'm I'm Leonard Lopez at large, I'm sorry. Mm, My name change, also known as. WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. You've reported that Trenton Democrats, led by Governor Phil Murphy, passed a bill that gutted the independence of the New Jersey Election Law Enforcement Commission. What's that all about? Oh, man. So we have to say there were out profiles in courage. We had Senator Nigel from Essex County, who is a state treasurer, uh, uh, because she just always uh, puts uh, ethics above party. She voted against it. Uh, there were Republicans who voted against it. So back uh, uh, in the yesteryear of the Watergate era, New Jersey passed uh, the New Jersey Election Law Enforcement Commission establishing that. And we had had just a spate of 
um, you know, you name it, every generation, whether it be Abscan, Bidrig, Harrison Williams. I mean, it's a very, very long. They should actually make a museum of this. I mean, just a rogues gallery that, you know, literally hundreds of elected officials uh, that have, uh, you know, left office in disgrace, served time. Anyway, so they came up with this system that was one of the best in the country uh, that was going to require transparency. There was public financing for the governor uh, that was optional. And then over time, it didn't really keep pace because of Citizens United and because, as as Senator Whitehouse has pointed out, uh, the Supreme Court was busy gutting campaign finance reform and making it, you know, they equating to Buckley v. Vallejo, equating campaign contributions with free speech. Well, all of a sudden, all this dark money flowed in, of which Murphy uses all the time, like the kind of ads you were describing before, where someone like uh, Michael Bloomberg can funnel millions in to help a candidate. And so there was a move to try to uh, get rid of uh, the executive director, Jeff Brindle. And when that didn't work, then they wanted to change the legislation to basically end. uh, There was like a 10-year statute of limitations. They could look back for 10 years. And so in a self-serving thing, the Democratic majority wanted to limit to two years because they actually had some violations that they were worried about that could result in a six-figure payout. So it's just a naked, corrupt, you know, my only hope is the FBI is paying attention. Now, now one of the reasons that Murphy gave for trying to force out Jeff Brindle, the executive director of the New Jersey Election Law Enforcement Commission, is uh, anti-gay bias in an internal email. What happened there? So this was a situation where, I mean, it should tell you, first of all, the elect is an independent agency. So that's a very important principle of law here that the legislature in for, you know, that was its wisdom to create an independent body. So you can't have as a, it would have been up to the board that is appointed of commissioners to make, take action against Brindle. So that was irregular to begin with. And then the way these guys did it, uh, these, uh, the mopes that are attached to Murphy, they call Jeff Brindle, who's like a career civil servant, nationally known and respected and well-regarded, uh, to the office of the governor and say, uh, we have this email. They wouldn't show it to him, you know, it, and that the idea was, you know, you wouldn't want this to ruin your career, would you? We could uh, certainly a fellow like you would like to, you know, retire with some dignity. The inference being that if uh, he didn't retire, because uh, he's been writing essays against dark money, which of which Murphy's is a big proponent, that he would they would somehow release that email. So that's this group. That's how they roll. So when they didn't get that done because Jeff Brindle stood his ground and sued them, now they use the legislature because the Democratic Party really, uh, with some exceptions that I noted, is pretty much, I don't know, we, we don't seem to have a very dynamic uh, progressive or reform movement within the Democratic Party. It's it's pretty much they they walk in lockstep, and it's always about self self preservation. At least at this point, and that's why every so often somebody gets popped, and then they go to jail. Did the uh, the fact that Brindle has been a fierce critic of uh, the the growing power of dark money uh, was that did uh, Governor Murphy view that as a personal attack? Well, I mean, no, he that's the other thing, too. Like uh, Governor Murphy uh, has never said anything on the record on any of this. So it's and, and, and when you ask them to comment, they cite that there's litigation. So this is all kind of inference. I mean, it was just so inappropriate to have his general counsel and the top people of his administration legally reach out behind the scenes in a covert effort to oust an independent watchdog. I mean, I mean, do these guys like not watch the wire? Like, I mean, I mean, could we be original at this point? I mean, that's what I feel, I guess, saddest about is my state is so wholly unoriginal. So what's the current situation in New Jersey in this regard? Uh, Well, it's a kind of standoff because they did pass the legislation. And so um, there's a there's a, a governor Murphy has. And oh, this is my favorite part. This is kind of like the hunter provision. The governor has a. Uh, like 60 or 90 day time to name the new commissioners without advice of the Senate. Doesn't that seem like a kind of like, you Mm -hmm. know, I don't know, a dictatorship. 
And so uh, that's how rollover the Jersey Democrats are, the legislature. Usually, usually uh, the basis of the three part of the three uh, branches of government is a kind of jealous competition to hold on to their prerogatives. Not in New Jersey. What do you want, Governor? Let you know, it's like a plantation. And so and why do you think of, that is? Is it because New Jersey is kind of like a split state? Split state. Well, here's well I the think thing. that the north and the south of New Jersey are, are, are very different. Well, well, that, that's true. Uh, there is that split. But also, I would say that part of the problem is that these guys can count on no one caring. Historically, like we're coming up on one of these elections, the next coming election, the legislature's up in its entirety. So that's your state assembly and state senate. You won't have the governor at the top of the ticket and some anemic 11 percent like nobody shows up. It's like it's like the uh, and so they've been counting on that historically. They this this crew really needs anemic turnout. Heaven forbid that there be a big turnout. Uh, I do think that the Democrats are leaving themselves vulnerable because the Republicans on this issue have been standing up on on, on, on an ethical matter. And so but I think the Democrats in New Jersey are counting on, hey, we're not Trump. I mean, that's all they've got. That's their game. We're not Trump. Now, if something happened to Trump, they wouldn't have a platform. Well, uh, not being Trump, of course, is something that many Republicans can also run on. But that's more difficult because there's a gallows. I think they think of the gallows in Mr. Pence. So, you know, they're a little hesitant. Well, for a long time, New Jersey was run by Republicans. Uh, is Is that a factor? Well, I mean, I think that we had a kind of Democrat. I mean, it's it's hard to feel like I'm talking about another planet, but I remember. But you live uh, there. What? Yeah, right. Governor uh, Governor Payne was in, in, endorsed by Coretta Scott King. Hmm. You know, I remember a, uh, a Melissa Fenwick. I remember Republicans that were all about the environment and uh, social change. What? I mean, so I say this today, and it sounds like that world is gone. Um, I don't see that it's it's coming back. But the problem is we have a monoculture in the state politically. And so you have uh, these incumbents and you have the situation where you have double office holding. Often you have mayors of prominent cities that are also legislators at the same time. Um, And I do think the fact that Trenton is in, uh, you're right to reference this split uh, where so much of our news comes out of uh, Philadelphia versus New York. And also, one of the things that I, I do think New Jersey is suffering from is the loss of NJN, New Jersey Network News. And it's funny, you'll get a kick out of this. New Jersey elect is located in the same building where the New Jersey um, News Network used to be, NJN, which Governor Christie disemboweled and sold to parts to our former employer, WNYC, WHHY, WHYY, and WNET. There was uh, our colleague uh, Zach Fink did a great series of stories about uh, Governor uh, Christie uh, and some stuff that was going on with uh, someone in his office he gave a loan to, Michelle Brown. And and so Christie just decided that he was going to dismantle New Jersey's uh, public television station, which he did in broad daylight. And you don't really see any conversation about that. Like, has WNYC asked, was that a mistake? Hmm. Well, let's review. Are you surprised by uh, how critical Chrissy has become recently of Donald Trump? Uh, Well, I kind of laugh, of course, because he was Trump before Trump was Trump. Mm -hmm. I mean, so I remember covering him uh, back in the day when he used to do that World Federation Wrestling. You know, I'm a large person, too. And I I kind of it was I'd like to see like a a large dude like myself become a rock star. And I used to go to cover these things where they would have black theatrical curtains and then his largeness would come out and then the people would go crazy. That's when he was governor. And so he was very sophisticated. I remember, you know, we always try to file at the top of the hour. So you'd be in some place in New Jersey, rural place. And he had this social media apparatus and he had state equipment and they were putting stuff online and Twitter and Facebook. So by the time you're having the conversation with your editor about what you might write, he was all over social media. So, you know, I, I see him as that whole bully thing, that alpha male thing. 
he really was the originator of the Trump brand. He should be getting residuals from Donald <laughs> Trump. We think of ourselves as being part of the tri-state area. Is Connecticut any different than New York and, and New Jersey these days? Well, I would say that they have. Um, no, it is. It is. Does seem to be different in the sense that you you have. It seems to be a bit more functional. I don't see open assaults on campaign finance reform for sport like we do here in New Jersey. Um, I I do think that um, there is a. Um, and I, I, I think the fact that we, we don't see, um, you know, New Jersey's got this problem where it doesn't get local news coverage. And so it, it's hard to get traction on issues. And so that's it does. Its identity is um, is more tied into depending on where you live. People are more apt to know who the mayor of New York is if they're north of 78 than they would who a county commissioner is or who their state legislator is. So that lack of state political identity only helps the folks in the tree fort down in Trenton. Why did this year's commemoration of the March 25th, 1911 Triangle Factory Fire, which claimed the lives of 146 mostly young immigrant female garment workers, draw a larger, younger, and more energized crowd than it has in previous years? Well, I think the pent up demand for people to see each other because for three years, and this is just a, a wonderful event that I suggest that you uh, go to. Uh, it's it's just a little bit east of um, Washington Square Park. It's the site. It's now the building belongs to NYU. It is uh, the New York uh, City Central Labor Council um, and um, uh, the, the Triangle Fire commemoration people. Uh, uh, put this on, and it's a, a wonderful event. It's to commemorate, of course, the 146 um, mostly young immigrant women who perished in 1911 in a fire in this uh, sweatshop that basically was resisting the organizing drive. And this year, uh, because of the year we've had with labor, uh, they had um, also the Workman Circle is very key, uh, a Jewish cultural group that keeps alive mm -hmm. Uh, the memory of what really over 100 of those young women, some as young as 14, perished that day. Uh, that was part of a... 100 I would say of the that, victims were Jewish. Yes. Yeah. Over 100 of the 146. Of the 146. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, one of the things that uh, was so important is a year, two years before, and this is often missed, it's uh, covered in my book, Instuck Nation, in 1909, 20,000 young immigrant women had a general strike and struck that entire industry in lower Manhattan. I mean, imagine 20,000 undocumented deliveristas saying, no lunch for you, no soup for you. And so what was tragic was the Triangle Fire was holding out. The other um, garment makers had signed on. And so it was their reactionary resistance that had them locking the doors. And as a matter of fact, uh, uh, these guys were acquitted um, in their manslaughter trial, but it actually changed the the face of uh, of the labor movement in the sense that Frances Perkins, who went on to become uh, Roosevelt's uh, labor secretary, she was having tea across the street <laughs> and ran to this scene, and it forever altered her life in terms of making this commitment to the circumstance of working people. And so what I saw there was a new generation, much like I did with um, Reverend Barber's uh, March in June in Washington, where a whole new generation that wasn't even born when Martin Luther King was assassinated is ready to stand up and take their turn. Well, do you think that uh, one of the reasons there was such a large attendance to this ceremony <clears throat> is because, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, there's a three been a three year hiatus during the COVID pandemic. Yeah, like I said, yeah, that's uh, that's part of it. And also, we had had this very effective one of the speakers there was Nancy Higgins, who's uh, uh, the visionary president of the New York State Nurses Association, who led a successful four day strike uh, against Mount Sinai and Montefiore. Uh, the nurses ended up with a 19 percent gain. Uh, in their pay over a few years, and most importantly for all of us, really, um, uh, guarantees of patient 
nurse ratios, which have been in place in California since 2004, and yet our for-profit healthcare system that runs on scarcity resists it. And so uh, there was a lot to celebrate. Uh, they're now involved with trying to get a decent contract from the city of New York for health and hospitals, with it, which itself is you know a giant that's got like I think a dozen acute care hospitals. Uh, and we're trying to get parity there for those nurses. But I do think going again back to COVID, I think that there's a militancy here because people it's been driven home to people how short life is and how for way too long great wealth has been running the table in this country. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at large <clears throat> with a suddenly uh, a host who is suddenly having something happen to his throat um, here on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Bob Henley, who is has a, a regular show on WBAI and also reports regularly for Salon, other prominent news organizations. Um, he uh, has a book called Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, which is published by Democracy at Work. And Bob, before we go back to the news, um, you have anything you want to say to our listeners uh, about uh, showing support to WBAI during this period of crisis? Do you see the crisis is, uh, that BAI is going through as part of what's happening generally in this country? Well, I mean, I see that we've been in perennial crisis, right? So um, I think that uh, one of the things that uh, we need to note, though, is that if uh, looking at what's been on this station and the voices that you heard here, have been the voices that have gone on to make a difference in the world. And so if you want to support social change, uh, you might want to take a look and look at the conveyor belt that's been operating that moves these thoughts forward through the airwaves. And that is WBAI. Um, we need you to call 212-209-2950, 212-209-2950. Or go uh, online we, to give to WBAI.org. That's given the number to WBAI.org. Right. And of course, uh, with your commitment to help sustain the station, you, uh, uh, you, you know, one of the things that you're doing is also helping us to demonstrate to other potential organizations and other individuals that we have this support, that sustaining membership and becoming a BA buddy develops a relationship. Uh, there's also all kinds of gifts and you get to be involved in the internal process of BAI. And doesn't that sound like a picnic? Well, I'm very proud of the fact that shows <laughs> like yours and mine discuss important topics that don't get much attention in the in the general media. Yeah, I would say that uh, the diversity of programming um, and also uh, the other thing, if you if you're someone that doesn't like the interruptions that do occur from time to time, and if you believe, as I believe, uh, that the programming is the premium. If if you've been frustrated in the past and, you know, uh, you've sent in for something and you want, uh, you know, merchandise is what you're looking for, uh, that's a very heavy labor-intensive model. Uh, they, we can do it, but the, the real uh, thing that helps us to be able to do the work we need to do to produce shows and, and not run a warehouse is if you support it as a free associated individual, someone saying, this is something that I value. I value having this check on even the corporatization of public radio. Let's be honest. We look around the landscape. It's no accident that the uh, people that were brought us the opioid scandal and uh, the big pharma, they were advertising on conventional corporate public radio. When the various fossil fuel companies want to go and affect a certain demographic, where do they go? Hmm. They go to corporate, public, radio, and television. That doesn't happen here. We pay a price for that. But we need you to help redeem this effort 
to make sure that there is that check on this very corporate conversation. So let me give out that phone number one more time, 212-209-2950, or you can go online to give to WBAI.org. Let's get back to some of the, the topics that you've been addressing recently. In a recent letter to the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, Senators Cory Booker and Robert Menendez warned that a concerning number of whale deaths along the Atlantic coast could be the harbinger of extinction for certain species of those extraordinary mammals. What's going on there? So this is something that's been going on for a while. NOAA has uh, declared this an, ex, uh, an, ex, uh, an unusual mortality event, and it goes back many years, several years. And so, but what started to happen is a, a number of things at the same time. So you have warming of the oceans, and so uh, whales that were hanging off the coast of South America are tending to move, uh, migrate north into the mid-Atlantic. At the same time, New Jersey and other jurisdictions, but particularly New Jersey, are moving ahead with commercial uh, scale wind power. And also the whales are finding themselves moving into the busiest uh, shipping lanes, maybe in the world, all through the pandemic when traffic was, you know, going through its uh, all that was happening, what we knew with freight, all that was happening on the oceans as well. And so we're having vessel strikes. We had, I think it was a dozen whales uh, just in New Jersey alone have shown up at some point of, uh, uh, some have been more decayed than others, but the necropsies have revealed vessel strikes. But this open question remains, does the development of something of the scale of wind power, uh, particularly dealing with the way they have to survey underground, the use of certain kinds of sonar to be able to grid the ocean, would that have an effect? Now, the environmental groups, there are some. That's the other problem. Like Clean Ocean Action is a po- wants a moratorium so that we can look at the process of how they are going around mapping the um, the ocean floor. Uh, I would say most environmental groups think that the greater threat to the whale population is the continued um, uh, uh, t- uh, climate crisis and the warmer temperatures. And so they want us to proceed and go ahead. Uh, and it, there's also a, it's a difficult uh, issue because because of the lack of uh, because of the role of corporate dark money, there's all kinds of agitation that's going on out there that may be from fossil fuels folks who don't want an alternative. So, like I say, this is one that I can see all sides. And it, it seems to me like we just need more transparency. And the other thing, too, is we need to make sure that right now. The nautical speed, the speed limit for vessels is optional. And so I do think that we need to uh, be mindful that we've had this shift in population. And, you know, as I said in the salon piece, you know, why do we have to have this addiction to next day delivery? Because that's part of what's driving this thing. I think we really need to review our choices and slow the world down a bit, especially if it means that we have to just... Uh, acknowledge the fact that uh, when you tear through the ocean with these uh, ships are getting bigger and bigger, the chances are that you are going to kill these these marine mammals that are, you know, on the verge of extinction in some cases. Well, are we paying enough attention to railroad safety? For example, the same railway system uh, has now been responsible for four derailments in just the last couple of months. Oh, you're talking about the 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 Norfolk Southern. Yes. So, so here's something I I really feel like uh, Workbites and BAI and so on. We played a big role in this story because we were on it very quickly. The lever was quick too, but when that thing happened in February in East Palestine, just to review, that was the Norfolk Southern train that derailed in the borderlands between uh, on Pennsylvania Ohio line. And East Palestine, uh, about 2,000 people were evacuated. And what ended up happening was uh, about a dozen cars went off the rails, including um, five that contained vinyl chloride, which is a very serious toxic uh, substance. And in the process, the railroad kind of commandeered and bigfooted the response and came up with the bright idea of venting all of the uh, 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 tanker cars of the vinyl chloride with this huge catastrophic release, which had all kinds of impacts on the the fish, 
And on the population, people complained immediately of scratchy throat and the rest. This opened people's eyes to the fact that uh, the United States went from having like 47 railroads in the 1980s down to seven. Uh, so we, we've recreated that a landscape that Theodore Roosevelt uh, decided to be a trust buster on. And so these railroads have been running longer trains, heavier trains, trains with a higher risk profile with fewer people. Because, again, there you go again, both parties cooperating because their job is to help amass great wealth, not protect the public. And so now all of a sudden that this happened – we're reassessing rail. This stuff has been rumbling through America's backyard corridor communities for a generation. And now we're paying attention. I hope it's not too late. Well, one railway company has now just had its fourth accident the other day. So, Yeah, well, one of the things well, is that— Do uh, they not watch their—you know, tend to the the their, their, their the tracks and the safety of riding of a train going over these tracks. Well, so it's so skewed. Uh, I mean, it's important to understand that really the railroads enjoy a special spot in the American predator capitalist scene. Remember, these guys got a leg up from the point of view that we, after we stole uh, the land and slaughtered the Native Americans, we gave the railroads, you know, the land, the full circle. So with a subsidy like that, you should be able to make some coinage. Carry it forward to the last, you know, 100 years. And uh, they have been known to ride roughshod over local communities and in rural places. Uh, and this is something that Democrats really need to hone in on. Uh, you can have a train that can cut your town in half uh, for, you know, a long time, a two mile long train or longer. And if you have an ambulance on the other side of it, well, you're just, you know, it's unfortunate you picked a bad place to live. And that's how America's been kind of run. That's That's been the way things are. And so now I do think that uh, this last, let's go back to look at the battle that happened with the unions rejecting hmm. uh, the contract where President Biden, Mr. Joe Labor, uh, forced him to go back uh, to work, even though a majority rejected this master agreement that didn't include sick time. And so... That now is you've awoken a giant and I've seen the the railroad uh, unions There's about a dozen of them uh, far more militant. They're now talking about the concept of public ownership. I mean, they're not messing around anymore. Um, and so I think that we want to move back the needle here. It has been going the other way for too long. And the freight rail thing is the fiscal manifestation of how much capitalism is off the tracks, pun intended. That was an unintended pun? No, it was intended. Oh, good. Okay. President Biden uh, hasn't announced that he's running for re-election, but um, hasn't it been reported that the Democratic National Committee is looking to to Governor Murphy of, of New Jersey to be part of a team of prominent Demogra uh, Democrats to help him fend off primary challenges? What's that? Well, yeah, about? so so it's actually the A team. It's got uh, anyone that's got well, uh, Governor Whitmer from who's very charismatic, intelligent in Michigan. Um, she was part of this team. Uh, Mayor Adams, uh, uh, Governor Pritzker from Illinois. It's too cute by half. The idea is, you know, it's uh, the idea of having uh, potential rivals close to you and be like your sled dog team pulling you to victory. Uh, again, it's uh, I do think they want to foreclose having a nasty debate about what it means to be a Democrat. And I think they'd really just like to be, we're not Trump. It's much simpler. You can fit it on a bumper sticker. There's not much thought involved. And that's kind of what professional Democrats hope it's all about. Oh, I'm sorry. There's two issues, uh, abortion and uh, maybe guns, but I'm not Trump. That's the lead. <laughs> Meanwhile, it looks like, at least at the moment, like Biden and Trump will be running against each other in the next election. Have we ever had an election where the two candidates were this old? Well, I first of all, I was so it's this is kind of a sick joke, but I was worried that my title Stuck Nation as a book mm. would not be relevant. I with my crazy optimism, I guess at 67 I'm still a kid. I was like, well, maybe the country will get unstuck, but I can't mm. think of more of an epitome of stuckness than having the two candidates that we had last time go at it again. 
I just hope that we don't do a full repeat pattern of Groundhog Day and have an insurrection and a pandemic. I could do without those two things. No, we still have a, a few minutes left. And uh, uh, I was wondering if there are other things that you feel that are important that we should be addressing. Well, uh, yeah, I would say that um, this issue about uh, having um, unions uh, and supporting the idea of organizing and, and making sure that we do really follow through and make sure that companies like Starbucks and Amazon pay a political price for violating labor law. And so that I would like to see uh, us become more conversant with who is on the boards of these organizations and what charities are a part of and hold them accountable for holding down the aspirations of a generation. Well, they're violating and federal laws. They are. So does, and it, but doesn't that, that yeah. make them liable for, uh, you know, for crackdowns? It's, well, no, but unfortunately, it's like the cost of doing business. And so, like in the case of what's been in the news lately, uh, Nabisco, because they're about to take uh, down that plant, uh, the company that owns Nabisco uh, basically, you know, they paid like a three million dollar fine for making the life miserable of the lives miserable of and firing longtime employees who were shop stewards there before they decided to leave the state entirely. I mean, did they claim they were losing do- losing dough? Uh, Forgive the bad pun. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, but uh, the thing about this is that I do think that there has to be, uh, and that's why I was glad to see, for instance, you do see controller Brad Lander. Uh, city controller Brad Lander and state controller Tom DiNapoli uh, coming up with shareholder resolutions to hold companies accountable for their uh, their personnel and the way they treat um, people trying to organize. I think we have to affirm people that uh, want to organize. We say that we want people to work. We want the economy to be productive. Well, supporting unions is a way to do that. One of the things I do is whenever I go to one of these chains and I get help somebody, I always... I'm that crazy guy that gives the kid a couple of dollars and say, listen, I hope you get a union. It was good to me. Like, have those conversations. Break the script. Break through the monotony. Start talking to people like every interaction you have could make a difference because it does. Okay. (laughs) Sorry. You got me up too early. I warmed up because I was on this morning. (laughs) Well, how's that show going for you? Because it's kind of early in the morning. (laughs) Yeah, well, it's it's good. I mean, I think that we had um, this uh, this morning. We had retired um, uh, fire captain Brenda uh, Berkman and uh, Marion Pizzatola, uh, yeah, retired FDNY EMT involved with the Medicare Advantage movement, trying to organize on behalf of the two hundred fifty thousand retirees to prevent Aetna from taking over their health care. And then we had uh, Corey Grable, who is a police officer, thirty years who is running against Pat Lynch for the PBA. So I think the show kind of popped. I think people are finding things to get to call in. That's another thing we do occasionally. I mean, that's the kind of journalism. I just don't think, quite frankly, that you'll hear those people um, at length in the format where you can call in. So I think it's worth fighting for. Mm -hmm. Well, I thank you so much for being on our show, and I look forward to your next visit. Uh, I'm sure that all sorts of terrible things are going to happen <laughs> in the interim, giving us things to talk about. It's kind of do you, people keep on saying to me, "This is a really scary time." Uh, I look back at American history and I think, "Well, we've had a, any number of scary times. Is this any worse than some of the others?" Well, as I say to my my three grown daughters, "Sorry about the planet, but the job market's looking up." Uh huh. <laughs> so. Well, the job market has opened up recently, but yeah, uh, yeah. Well, that's when you have a million people die, things happen. Uh, I see. So, uh, I guess we should hope for another pandemic, and then we can eliminate unemployment altogether. I have to say, this level of energy I'm seeing at places like Rutgers, I feel very optimistic about this. I, I just say I don't think the professional Democrats are ready for what's coming. This is a generation when you see the clips coming out of uh, Tennessee. And what's happening with the response to the mass shootings uh, and the loss of reproductive rights, I don't think that there's a tide that's rising, Leonard. You can hear Robert Henley's WBAI shows on Monday mornings, what, 8 o'clock? No, that, that's Democracy Now! Oh. 7 a.m. 7 a.m. 
Yes. Uh, woo. Uh, <laughs> also, yeah, th- theater people like you, you don't get up at 7 a.m., do you? Well, I used to do a show on BAI from midnight to 5, and <laughs> the person who followed me, uh, who's still at the station, would call me every so often and say, Leonard, I don't think I can make it in. Can you <laughs> take over my show? So I would do midnight to 7 on Monday nights. Uh, that's third trick, buddy. Ooh. All right. <laughs> well, anyway. Talk to you later. Uh, his, uh, he writes regularly for Salon, a number of other prominent news organizations. And you should check out his book, Stuck Nation, Can the United States Change Course on Our History of Choosing Profits Over People, which is published by Democracy at Work. And that does bring us to the end of our show. If you'd like to check out more about one-hour interviews on one subject, or in this case on a number of subjects, but on the, the state of the nation, you can access our archive of over 800 shows at WBAI.org or on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that podcasts are available. Uh, just look up Leonard Lopate at large, and you'll find a long list of shows. You can also find links to our past shows at, uh, well, if you'd like to reach me directly, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. And right now I I need to ask you to consider stepping up and supporting WBAI uh, as we struggle to stay afloat during these difficult times. We are asking all of our listeners who haven't taken that step already to make a tax-deductible contribution at whatever level they're comfortable with by going online to give2wbai.org or by calling 212-209-2950 right now to keep the unique, in-depth content we bring you on this show and other shows on this station coming to you on a regular basis. That's give and the number 2wbai.org or Call 212-209-2950. And you might also consider becoming a sustaining member, what we call a BAI buddy, at $10, $15, $20, $25, however much a month you can you feel comfortable with and can afford. And uh, that allows us to plan for the future. Uh, and we uh, offer a WBAI tote bag to everyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy for $10 a month or more. But either way, I hope you'll call right now because BAI relies 100% on listener donations. We don't take ads for foundation grants, uh, which allows us to be completely free speech radio. And if Lented Located Large is part of your daily routine, why not keep it going for someone who's just discovering it? You can do that by calling 212-209-2950 or by going online to give to WBAI.org to help support public independent radio. And don't forget to make that tax-deductible contribution in the name of London located at large. Um, we're the only station in the New York radio dial that is completely 100% listener-supported. Um, from all of the people at the station, we thank you very much, and we hope that you can join us again tomorrow when one of America's most incredible music greats, Charlie Morrow, will be our guest. So we will see you then. By Charlie, Mar- we're listening to something by Charlie Morrow right now because he provided our theme music.